said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. There was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, what is happening out there in podcast land? All righty, all righty. I told you I was going to have this stuff up, ready, and on the go for this week. So, yeah. Well, it's your boy Dan White Hodge here with Profane Faith. And first and foremost, I want to thank uh, all the listeners who have, man, you know, we're getting a lot of more downloads. Uh, we're well in close to 1,500 subscribers uh, and all this just within a year, um, just a little over the year, actually. Um, and I'm, I, I just want to say thanks. Thanks to those faithful listeners. Thanks to those of you uh, listening uh, on a day to day or week to week, I should say. Um, and I thank you for those of you just picking this up and you just you just wanted to check an episode out, man. And like I always say, go back to episode zero zero. You can check out what this podcast is about. My story is in episode one. Um, but really, just thank you. I really have appreciated all the direct messages uh, from my talk that I gave at a conference at CCDA um, a few weeks back. I have received over 900 emails and direct messages and texts and tweets. Um, and the I would say it's a 50 to one ratio, 50 really good, positive, affirming and one, you know, negative. And that's really astounding because a lot of times it's it's flip flop, right? It's like it's almost like a seven to eight ratio, seven positive and then like eight, you know, really bad ones. But I have just been really overwhelmed by by that and and really just thankful. I'm thankful that. You know that this has all come together um you know in in the way that it came together um as you know if you've heard that episode i won't rehash what happened this is you can go back a few episodes and uh check out my talk and just kind of the context of which it was in as i've been saying uh you know to folks that i've run into uh that was really a god-filled moment um, and I think those who just who, who, who were taken by, quote unquote, the cursing, although I didn't curse, I used very strong language. I was very direct and I, I pulled no punches. Um, but that was a God moment. And I think those who are still caught up with the bad language, um, I think you're you're probably still on a journey. You're probably still on a journey trying to figure out I was once there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and I'm not trying to say, oh, I'm looking back and looking down. But I'm just saying I used to be that way. I used to be that way in public. Oh, you can't talk that way. But in private, <laughs> I would say different things. Oh, right. Um, so I get it. You know, in my fundy years, those those years, they they just they took a lot out of me. And uh, hopefully those of you who are still offended by the language, um, you know, you can begin to process that and, pr- and process, you know, some stuff some more. But, I'm, you know, pick up my latest book, Homeland Insecurity, and uh, check out what I have to say, you know, beyond the strong language. You know, you got to remember that was, they gave me seven minutes. I took 10, <laughs> but, you know, I had seven minutes. So it's like a TED Talk. So you're, you're, the goal there is just to provoke and provoke thought 
and and get folks to to you know to think on some things. It wasn't a full out plenary session. That's why I did my my podcast and on that whole episode on that because I wanted to give bookends. I wanted to give a beginning and I wanted to give an end. Um, so that has been overwhelmingly so. And just people who were like, man, I am really thinking of rethinking missions. I'm really thinking about how race affects us how you know i'm really thinking through like this allyship man i've had people praying for me they don't even know praying for me so i i take that i take those blessings you know i take those that encouragement for those of you again who are new listeners just came on thank you so much um i really do appreciate that it's been rough like i said there's some stuff developing uh i can't get into too many details right now uh but i'm very hopeful i feel god is doing a stirring and i know that sounds really pentecostal and and now that i'm against pentecostal or pentecostalism i i have roots in that as well um but i maybe want to situate that better in like in the metaphysics um in 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 kind of the socio metaphysics environment uh there's something you know when you start thinking about energies and uh how those energies move uh along with that dreams and this is really you know delving into my own mysticism uh as i look at the bible as i look at god as i look at um just the the mystic environment that god surrounds so i i will say that i feel like there's a stirring and i don't know what that means i've, I've felt those at at at, at at moments in my life when there's something major about to, to, to come down the pike um you know when the la uprisings happened i felt that i couldn't name it but i felt that um uh you know when i recommitted my life to god i felt that stirring i was getting a little close to renaming it when i felt like i needed to go back to college and in my mid-20s you know and start a ba against everybody's good advice to not to or at least right go back part-time don't you know i remember people telling me oh dude you know you, you you've been out of school for too long man I, how are you gonna take a, a college level math how are you gonna even write these things you know you should just consider taking one class but i knew what god was telling me right and i knew i had to dive in and stuff man and so uh i felt that move or that stirring when i met emily you know who's now my wife we just celebrated 17 years now we're working on our 18th year right of marriage um i felt that stirring to go back to grad school to do a phd um the move from california out here i mean so that's just all to say that i know god is doing something the godhead however you want to look at god she he them they i don't necessarily know if i put a gender on god especially if i look at god as is is an an advanced life form right um the supernatural will be indistinguishable from uh what we would describe as magic or you know but their technology would be so far in advance right um so i yeah i don't know we'll see we'll see i think we as humans are connected to broader environments i think western uh medicine western theology um western lifestyles have kind of dulled us to those energies i was talking with my my, my good friend alonda clay who is also who has also been on the show I'm gonna get her back and uh we were talking about energies and talking about how those things affect us and how we engage take for a minute just the energy that happens around black friday if you've ever been out on a black friday it is insane and not even on a black friday but just the holiday season really starting right before thanksgiving all the way till really after about like december 27th uh till after christmas and so there are it's just the energy that's in there it's frantic it's anxious 
It's uh, uh, it's frustrated. It's pensive. It's there's all this, and it's like you can almost it's almost overwhelming. And I'm working on doing a show around energies and what those mean. So that's that's coming because I do believe, at least for me, the journey that I'm on is. I'm trying to move away from Western madness. I think evangelicalism really took a number on me, right? Because, you know, all this rationality and in my head and, you know, and I think once we once we push past that, we're able to get into, again, the socio-metaphysics metaphysic, me, of what is happening outside of our body. How do the different people we engage with, you know, bring us life, bring us death? You know, how can you begin to recognize some things that are coming ahead of time? I mean... Jesus talked about all of these things, right? <laughs> he talked about these things, about some of this, you know, some of the technology and, and faith that he left us with. I do believe faith is like a technology, um, you know, almost like an, an, an AI, you know, in, in one sense. So for me, I want to be able to, you know, tap more into that. And, and that requires, you know, doing a lot of different things, reading differently, thinking differently, uh, quieting my soul um and 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 really finding that space to to be in where i am able to receive that information because i think it's easy to just get caught up which hence this 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 show episode today is on the sabbath right (laughs) taking a break uh and realizing what that break um is about so i don't know i am uh, i i i don't these changes that are happening and the reason i can't talk about it because there's just a lot of movement and i'm sure there's probably ears on this that you're just you know that are just you know getting gaining getting ammo <laughs> for stuff uh so i want to be careful with what i say and hopefully we'll be able to look back on this episode you know a year from now and be like oh that was happening or that ended up happening so that's kind of you know my thought on that thought process on that so it's not that i want to withhold information i'm pretty transparent if you know me um, but I do want to be strategic uh, in moving forward with that. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. You know, at the same time, like, OK, what's going on? What's next? And, 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 and what I mean by next, not necessarily a move across the country. I, you know, because I honestly I don't I don't want to leave Chicago. I like Chicago. It's a great city. So many great things here. And plus, my daughter, I don't want to uproot her. Um, I had to move. And, you know, after my eighth grade year, which. If you're going to move, that's a good time to move, to, you know, rather than disrupting, you know, a whole, you know, a, a, a kid's life, you know, with friends and social contacts and everything. But I really would like for her to be in one spot. There's something about that. Um, and I know that that's not for everybody. I know that that's a privilege as well. Uh, both working, my wife and I are both working uh, uh, folks and we we're able to afford that privilege. And I will lean into that privilege and, and take that privilege if I can. You know, it may not happen. I don't know. I don't know what the future brings. You know, my daughter's in sixth now, so she's got, you know, we got six more years uh, to go, at least, you know, towards high school. I'd like to keep her here through high school. Um, at least that's the goal. But we'll see. You know, we'll see. I, didn't, I never saw myself in Chicago. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, bro, you're going to be in Chicago and, you know, you have big jackets and, and, and snow boots. I would have been like, oh, hell nah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Nah, not the kid. Nah, not me. <laughs> so, um, yeah man yeah good stuff good stuff good stuff man there's a lot of stuff in the news y'all um (laughs) all right i gotta talk about this i i gotta i gotta at least mention it and i'm thinking about doing a special episode on it as well but i'm sure you've already heard by now the american missionary killed a remote indian island uh let's see john allen chow Uh, he was a missionary 
um, out in India. He's the young American. He was paddling his kayak toward a remote Indian island whose people have resisted the outside world. Interesting language there in this article. Uh, outside world for thousands of years. Believed God was helping him dodge the authorities. God sheltered me and camouflaged me against the Coast Guard and Navy, said John Allen Chow, wrote before he was killed last week on a North Sentinel Island. Um, all right, here we go. First and foremost, uh, any life that's taken, I mean, that that's, that's bad. You know, that's, that's, that's not good. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to see folks get killed. I really don't. I really don't. Um, and, and, and I think about, you know, somebody's life, especially as young as this guy looked, you know, I, yeah, I, you know, he's had a whole life in front of him. So I don't think that's, that's a very good thing. So I think that's an issue right there. I think what I, I don't want to talk about that, you know, and, and I don't want to necessarily sound callous either. I think I want to talk about the broader issue of colonization, particularly Christianized colonization, settler Christian colonization, settler colonialism, uh, as it relates to Christian missions, um, which is a large part of the work I've been doing in Homeland Insecurity. Um, you know, I mean, as I read this, I am I'm I'm grasped by, you know, just again, this understanding of what it means to, quote unquote, bring the gospel to folks. I was reading some tweets and some folks and was like, hey, man, who doesn't want to live civilized with air conditioning and heaters and Wi-Fi and electric? And I'm just like, man, I have to say there is something about the deep, the non-colonized groups that continue to remain in their spaces and not fall into Western society. Now, I know that's a complex thing to say because I, I don't think it's I don't think it's as simple as that. I don't think it's as simple as just, you know, being we could all go out and just get our own tribe or whatever, live off the land. I will say that there is something about not having a colonized person, right, come to you. Uh, there were reports that uh, other uh, missionaries, other white missionaries had come there. Uh, and I haven't confirmed these. This is just, so this is conjecture right now that I'm bringing up. So let me just be clear. I had heard there were other reports about other white missionaries coming and taking some of the kids. Um, and, and, you know, they perceived it as stealing the kids. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, I don't know. But there, there, there is obviously a strong reaction uh, to this person. Um, you know, they're talking about officials, you know, typically don't travel to the North Sentinel area where people live as their ancestors did thousands of years ago. The contacts only occasionally give gift giving visits in which bananas and coconuts were passed by small teams of officials and scholars who remained in the surf were years ago. Um, you know, and I think it's something because. Gosh, dogs. I get that. Folks, I get that there's a, 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 a sense that folks, you know, have this urgency to go take Jesus to the world. I want to posit that I'm not necessarily sure that that is exactly a, a clean idea. What I mean by that is, is like, you know, people say, oh, but the intentions were good. I don't know, because so much of particularly evangelical Western Christian theology has been embedded in white supremacy. Now, I talk about that. I get it. I'm just, I'm just going to quote right out of my book. 
um, where I talk about Christianity has been the narrative of those of European and white ancestry. Male dominated in many respects, Christian knowledge derives itself from a white notion of supremacy and dominance. Okay? There's something within that where we go and plant our flag and say, this now belongs to Christians. And then here's the thing. If we just left it at that, if we just left it and said, okay, here's Christ, go and do with it as you see fit. But it's not. It comes with how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to talk, how you're supposed to be. All of those things. White notion of suppressing your dominance and regards anything outside of quote unquote Christian theology as the other. Okay. Therefore missions from this perspective connotes the white Western confinement of Christianity, which spreads this further, this dominance further. For example, when Kenyan pastors attempted to implement the principles of Rick Warren's the purpose driven church in their context, the result was a failure on many levels. The churches in the Kenyan location were not from an affluent suburban location and therefore could not relate to the issues raised in this book or raised in that book. So this is where I really feel like, you know, this is this is where we're at. We're stuck, right? We're, we're a lot of us are a lot of us are. I wouldn't say I, 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 we all are. Well, a lot of us are. And so, again, I feel for old boy getting killed. At the same time, I think this needs to bring the question up of like, man, somebody needs to be raising the question like, really? Did you not think to work with folks? Did you not think to actually go and figure out language and, 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 and work with folks who understand this culture? And maybe the culture just wants to be left the hell alone. <laughs> you know, because quite honestly, he's bringing a colonized theology. And maybe folks are just like, no, nah, I don't want that. I don't want that. We don't want to be colonized at all. So, I mean, this is, yeah, man. I think... I think it's important um, to to engage with these issues in regards to what it means to actually, quote unquote, bring the gospel to somebody. And I think that in and of itself is one thing, and we can have a whole show and discussion just on that, right? What is the Missio Dei? What is the mission of God? So much of evangelicalism or Christianity for, for that matter has been built upon going out, converting others. What does that really look like in the 21st century with technology? Right. What does that really look like when somebody can pull up the quote unquote gospel, you know, on Wikipedia? Um, so, I, you know, I, I, these are just quite these are just questions I got. And I think it's important that we start to dialogue on this. Less we have more folks die like this because there are still groups that are out there who are just like I don't I don't we don't want to go. I ain't even go front. There's part of me that doesn't want to be colonized. I struggle with being colonized in many regards. I'm trying to get rid of so much of it, and at the same time, it's like gum and honey all up in your hair and on your fingers. It's sticky. It's you trying to get it off, and it's like oh my gosh, it's everywhere. It's like that meme or that little video they're showing about glitter. Right? It's like glitter is everywhere and you got to like, you know, burn the stuff that has glitter on. It gets everywhere. Colonization gets everywhere. And I know plenty of people who are listening to this podcast are feeling the exact same way. It's like, man, I went through my fundamentalist years. I was told to believe this way, told to vote that way. And now all of a sudden, you know, you have some awakening. And I and I and here's the thing. Not that the, what they did was 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 the right thing to do. But at the same time, I will say that that group's resisting like this. is This is part of our resistance. And I'm pretty sure there was some warnings beforehand. 
<laughs> Sounds like he, the brother was in a boat doing some things, some crazy things. He says, you know, he quoted here, he said, you guys might think I'm crazy and all this, but I think it's worthwhile to declare Jesus to these people. He wrote in one last note to his family, Post reports, God, I don't want to die. Right. That kind of keeps coming up over and over. You know, do we also talk about uh, ethnic minorities who, who, you know, who go out there and do some of this stuff? Most of the folks that I see get killed or, you know, these are white males, white cis males. So, man, this oh man, there's there's all kind of stuff just wrapped up in this just just alone. What does that actually mean? What does the great white hope in Christian missions really mean? Yeah. You know, brother was a graduate of uh, Old Roberts University, you know, Christian College in Oklahoma. Uh, he was known to spend summers alone in California cabin as a wilderness emergency responder. You know, and of course, here we come with the quote. I've never known a more courageous and selfless, compassionate man and friend. Um, well, first and foremost, I mean, Oral Roberts University, I mean, just put it this way. They ain't going to be asking me to come out and give a plenary. <laughs> no, they are not. So this is coming with a brand of Christianity. Um, this is exactly what I talk about in the book. Impair the impairment of missions, short term missions and white led urban missions. There's an impairment with that. I got a boatload of damn footnotes in here. So you got to check it out, man. It's like subtle racism, you know, describing a form of racism that is indirect, belittling, typically nonverbal, communicated and non-intentional. You know, I make the case that with gentrification, uh, that the, with the gentrification of many urban cities in America, ethnic minority students, predominantly black and Latinx, are making their presence known in what has been a traditionally white youth ministry settings in the suburbs. I give some sources here to kind of look at that. And, but my point being is, is that most people don't know how to engage with that population. They don't know how to look. They don't know how to feel. And so, again, going back to my training, the gospel is universal. Now, the gospel is racialized on many corners. How you see deity matters. How you understand deity matters. How you engage with the amount of issues of race in your own life will determine how you look and engage with the gospel, how you present that gospel. Because I can guarantee you, oh boy here was coming with a white theology, straight up. And a conservative one at that. So these folks are like, nah, no thanks. Nah, I'm out. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm reading other things, you know, where American missionaries death, of course, is going to hurt India. Um, you know, because anytime a white person is killed, you know, we, we pay attention to that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um... You know, NBC says who helped uh, the missionary embark on a deadly mission. This came out on Friday, November 30, 23rd. Um, yeah, man. I mean, this is some shit. I mean, this is it. This is this is some stuff. Yo, it's. I think we have to talk about colonization and settler colonialism within within mission organizations, because this is this is exactly uh, what this is. This isn't anything short but that. Um and those of you who know me, you know, I'm, I'm not for short term missions. I think we need to stop all missionary crap right now and like reevaluate and look at w what does race and culture look like? Because some of these same folks and we hear this all the time, right? Some of these same folks who are saying no to the caravan want to want to walk right across that border and go right into Mexico and go right into, you know, uh, Central America and do missions without ever looking at the systems that put those folks there. Nah, man. Nah, I ain't, I ain't having it no more. So, 
you know, you can get at me, you know, if I, and I know this, 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 I know this strikes, you know, emotion in a lot of different folks and, and thought in a lot of different folks and ideology in other different folks. For me, like I said, it's bad that he's dead. I don't really want anybody dead. But at the same time, we have to look at the broader thing. I mean, the, the fact that this is continues to happen. I mean, look at the continent of Africa, particularly Central and Southern Africa, of how it's been colonized, you know, in Christianity to the point that they reject their own theologians. Kenyans don't necessarily like other Kenyan theologians or hold them in high regard. You know, out in uh, Sierra Leone, they don't necessarily like you know, regular West Africans. That's problematic, yo. That's problematic. That is a deep sense of supremacy, of white supremacy seeking in to say, say no, I want the, the colonizers theology. I want the colonizers commentaries. Like I said before, I say it again, man. The racism is in the theological DNA. It's in the commentaries we read, you know, and so I'm all for scholars uh, like Dr. Will Gaffney, who take on a Hebrew hermeneutic uh, from a black womanist perspective. Right. I'm all for um, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas looking at sexuality in the black church, you know, from a black womanist perspective, feminist perspective. Those are important things to be taken into account. Right. And I think it's very important. I've said this before as well, you know, that, you know, these courses that folks take, you know, because really all the courses are on race that most cortical seminaries offer in places like Oral Roberts University. I'm sure they had some intercultural class and it was probably weak as shit. All right. It just was. I'm just straight up saying it was probably weak as hell, man. They probably just had some book like, oh, striving for multicultural churches and reconciling, man, yo. You need the hundred proof. You can't be taking that little margarita mix and thinking you got something, man. You need you need the real deal. You need to go make that shit on your own, yo. So, man, I, yeah, I, you get me fired up, man. All right, I'll let it go. It's 25, we're 25 minutes in. So those are my thoughts. I'm going to continue with this, and I think it's important that we continue with the discussion. Now, on to today's matter. We're looking at Sabbath. We're looking at Sabbath from a little bit of a different perspective. My guest today is Dr. Nathan Stuckey. Serves a, he serves as the director of the Farminary Project at Princeton Theological Seminary. I want a big shout out to Werner. Werner, who graduated uh, from Princeton, a, he was in for, a former student of mine as well. Man, it's hard to believe that, man. This brother was out there. He's like, yo, man, you got to you gotta bring uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Nathan on, man. I was just like, all right, man, cool. And so he set this interview up and, and this, this whole time up. So I really appreciate you, Werner, for doing that, man. Um, yeah, this, this brother it was good. We had a really good conversation on Sabbath and what it means to rest. Uh, Dr. Stuckey uh, grew up on a farm in Kansas where his love for Christian faith and our uh, agriculture first took root. He earned a BA in music from Bethel College in Kansas. Uh, Nathan spent six years doing ecumenical youth ministry on the eastern shore of Maryland, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, and two years farming back in Kansas. After farming, Nathan earned an MDiv and a PhD, practical theology and Christian education formation from Princeton Theological Seminary. His scholarship explores the integration of theological education and agrarianism, and he sees the farmery as a locus for enacting that integration. He's ordained in the Mennonite Church, and uh, this is a great conversation because I think all of us need to look at a Sabbath. We need to look at rest. We need to take time to pause. That's part of what I was just even just getting at, you know, prior to what I was saying about, you know, tapping into energies, tapping into, you know, the mystic getting out of our heads and into our bodies that doesn't happen unless you stop um and, and 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 i'm preaching to myself here i'm preaching to myself telling myself like man i 
need to stop. Because it's easy, it's easier to push push on sometimes. It's easier to push forward. It's easier to make my body do things it doesn't want to do, you know, for the sake of work, for the sake of looking good, for the sake of, you know, publishing one more article. And I get it, we're all on deadlines and we all don't have the same privileges and and and, and resources that the other does. There is an importance to rest. And so this conversation that I that took place this week. Uh, I thought was a very important one. Um, and like I said, Nathan and I had a really good conversation, you know, and how that relates to race and culture and gender and all those good things. Uh, so it was important to, you know, for me to, you know, put this out because I, I, I am continuing on the theme that I told you I wanted with, you know, uh, season three. And that is looking at rest, which I believe connects back to your own mental health. Um, and and uh, we're going we're going we're going to keep circling back to that uh, throughout this season and what that means to be mentally healthy, behaviorally healthy. What does that mean to really, you know, live into your strengths, uh, especially as folks who have been hurt and traumatized uh, by Christian churches? So, yeah, crazy stuff, right? <laughs> Well, without any further ado, y'all, again, I appreciate y'all listening. Keep subscribing. iTunes, Stitcher, Google, SoundCloud, WhiteHodgePodcast.com. You can go and download the show notes there. They're always there. And thank you so much. And so, again, Dr. Nathan, we're talking about the Sabbath. Check this conversation out. All right. So this is and and this is part of the story, birth to now. you know, the, the, the sort of nutshell version of, of my story, I grew up on a farm in central Kansas um, and was kind of in that setting until college, got an undergraduate degree in alto saxophone performance. Nice. Yeah. Uh, after that, got married and moved to Maryland, uh, the eastern shore, where I served as a youth pastor for about six years. Okay. All right. Went back to Kansas, farmed full-time for about two years. And then while I was farming at that point, had to kind of own up to a sense of call to ministry. And so packed up a wife and at that point, two kids to to move to Princeton Seminary with the intention of getting a two-year MA degree and going back to work. Okay. then the MA became MDiv, which transitioned into PhD, uh, which then transitioned into Farminary, which is the, the project that I get to lead at the seminary now. Um, and, and so the, the, the Farminary kind of puts together these big pieces of my life before getting to seminary by integrating fully accredited theological education and small-scale regenerative agriculture. Uh, and we do this at the seminary's 21-acre farm and we're working on curriculum and program to get uh, our students, faculty, broader community, hands in the soil um, with this idea that that um, um, the skills and the proficiencies, the sensibilities of an adept agrarian, a good farmer, good gardener, good animal husband broadly overlap with the skills and proficiencies of, uh, of a, a good leader in the church of the world. So. Somebody who knows how to pay attention to seasons. Somebody knows how to tend life. Somebody knows how to go into a uh, ecosystem and assess where is it vital and where has its vitality been compromised and how you respond in such a way that might restore vitality. Mm. Uh, all those things are, are are pastoral in both senses of the term, cutting both to uh, say the congregation community, uh, but also to the field. Um, 
to the garden. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I know Warner connected us because of my work on, on the Sabbath. Um, my, my dissertation was on, uh, young people and Sabbath. Okay. Um, there's, I mean, there are for me deep connections between that work on young people and Sabbath and the farminary. Um, but, but you have to dig down a couple of layers into the Sabbath work before some of those connections, uh, become more evident. Um, so, so that, so there's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know where you want to dig in from there. Uh, or, or, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to, to riff on any of that. Um, no, well, I mean, I'd be definitely very interested in, uh, particularly, you know, what that, you know, what Sabbath looks like. I mean, I, uh, you know, I was, I was raised in the Seventh Day Adventist faith, and so, um, growing up, you know, I mean, it was a heavy diet of Sabbath, but you know, Sabbath, of course, meant one thing, and oftentimes it got fundamentalized and uh, very much about dogma and rules. Um, and I think from all of that, I, I took man, rest is important. I mean, you know, being balanced or not even balanced, but just having a rhythm, um, in that. And, you know, and, and this is really one of my first semesters that I've really tried to take control of my own schedule rather than it taking control of me. Um, so I'd be curious to know what, you know, what, what, what does that look like? What does Sabbath look like? What do you mean? What do you mean by that particular term? And how does that play out with what you're, you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when I teach Sabbath, I'll, most often start um, Genesis one one, and and you know sort of cycle through these this seven day creation story, and I'll say you know what what did God create on day one? Okay, so it's light, and then I'll say like okay, so what were humans doing at this point in the story? Well, they're not doing anything; they haven't been created yet. And so then you go through day two, three, four, five, all these things. You know, God does all this stuff, all this creation. What are humans doing at this point in the story? Well, they're not doing anything because they don't exist yet. You finally get to day six. All the land animals are created. And then and then um, uh, at the sort of end of this creative activity on God's part, there's humankind. And uh, it seems, well, I would say one of the errors of, as far as like history of interpretation is concerned, is that that human interpreters have too often interpreted that as the pinnacle of the story. Mm. Humankind is created. Ah, oh, that's, that's just as good as it gets, but it's, I don't think it is. I, I think uh, there's another day. Right. And so you get to day seven and there's this interesting phrasing. If you, if you look at Genesis two, one to three, which is the description of that seventh day, um, the, the the way the NRSV uses the term finished is mm. actually confusing because it says on the seventh day, um, uh, 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 crud, I, I'm going to grab it because I want to, I want to get it right here. Just a second. No, I hook that up, man. Shoot. <laughs> gonna, gonna inter- interrupt the story for station identification. Genesis two, it reads like this. Um, so two verse two. And on the seventh day, Oh, I'm sorry, 2-1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And then verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done and God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So it uses the term finished two times 
in a confusing way. So it begins with, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Hmm. Look back at the previous six days saying, it's finished. But then it goes on to say, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done. So what do, what do we do with that? How, how is it finished, but then it gets finished? And, and so I, I lean into, um, you'll have to excuse my reference to dead white guys. Um, it's but, all good, um, man. Come with it. <laughs> but I, I lean pretty heavily on on Carl Barth's interpretation of this day of this of this uh, of the creation saga, and and so the way he spins this is he says, "Look, God's creative activity is finished at the close of day six, um, uh, and 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 that is that's concluded. But on day seven, uh, it is still true that God finishes creation." But, but God doesn't finish creation through more work. Uh, that's not what it says. It says that God rested and God finished creation. So he, he interprets that to say the thing that creation is missing mm. on day seven is Sabbath rest. And that the whole creation remains incomplete and unfinished apart from God's Sabbath rest. And it is through that rest and the presumed invitation to all creation to participate in that rest that creation actually comes to completion. It is finished uh, when by way of God's rest. And 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 so then Bart says there's two things that this seventh day, this Sabbath, reveal about uh, who God is. First of all, it, it reveals God's freedom. Uh God isn't a God who just keeps creating, you know, ad infinitum, like just create, 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 because such a God wouldn't actually be free, but would be bound to that creative activity. Hmm. Instead, God demonstrates freedom in limitation. Uh, and he has this quote where he says, a being is free uh, only when it can determine and limit its own activity. Uh, and so I, I love the way this pushes back against all of the sort of uh, uh, late market capitalism, consumerism definitions mm-hmm. of what it means to be free, where like yeah. your, your cell phone carrier wants to think that you're free if you have an absolutely unlimited cell plan. And and the Sabbath, I think, and God through the Sabbath says, eh, maybe not. Maybe we're free when we can set some boundaries around uh, whether we're working or whether we're not. Uh, and to be able to limit our activity might say more about our freedom than our endless activity. Um, so, free, so freedom is, is, is the first thing that's revealed uh, about God on, on the Sabbath. And then the second thing is God's love. Uh, and so it's, it's, God doesn't keep searching for the object of God's love. God finds it. And it is, it is all creation and humankind in particular. And so God has time for uh, uh, the, that which God loves. And and this happens on 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 the seventh day. Um, uh, so so um, so when I say Sabbath, I mean uh, <coughs> an exercise in in freedom that is hopefully theologically rooted, um, an expression of of love, uh, hopefully, um, and and. Um, and more, but that, but that's a start. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm with you, man. So what is that? So, so let me just, I love that. I like the breakdown of that and you know, the freedom, like the definition of like what that freedom is. I mean, I think 
that's part of what I've tried to discover over the last year. Like, what does that really look as I'm trying to develop more of this and, you know, and have some kind of rhythm to my own life. But how does that look like pragmatically, right? I mean, okay, so a student yeah. who comes and, you know, they've got all kind of tests or papers and stuff, and then they're, they're probably working, you know, especially if they're in grad school and yeah. uh, or if they may have a family. I mean, what in the day-to-day, um, what, what does that look like, particularly for you? And then how mm-hmm. do you, you know, how do you counsel and mentor, you know, uh, students that come that come your way as well? Right, right. So my one, my one word answer to what does it look like is it looks like death. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so, uh, so, so hang with me here for a second. All right. Um, Come on. Another all important Sabbath story for me is Exodus one to 16. Mm, okay. All right. So we have, the children of Israel, literally the children of Israel, and then and the whole Joseph scenario, and then but but then it's it's captivity, it's oppression for for God's people, and there's the whole dramatic saga of God leading the Israelites out of captivity and into n- not the promised land immediately, but rather the wilderness to begin with, and in the wilderness they run out of food. They complain because they should have because they're out of food. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and God responds by providing for them manna and Sabbath all in one. And and so I, I think there are so many things going on here. Um, but at the core, I think what's happening here is is a long, slow, uh, generation long process of slowly reforming, regrounding the identity of the Israelite people. Um, as far as I can tell, when they enter the wilderness, their dominant source of identity is captivity. Mm. They've only known themselves for 400, 430 years, depending on which text you read, uh, 10 generations as captive people. And, and so they show up, and it, it, in some ways, it makes perfect sense that when God provides manna and and along with it, there's a quota, right? It's one omer per day. Like this is the language they understand. They've been doing quotas for generations, but it's not this like um, unattainable quota. It's like this s- small daily bread quota and it's one omer, but then that's it. One omer, then eat it all and then come back the next day and gather an omer and eat it all, and repeat until you get to day six. On day six, gather two omers, save an omer for the next for the seventh day, and then on the seventh day, stop. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. Eat, eat eat the omer you have, and then start over on day eight. So my so so if if the if the worth of a person of Israel in Egypt is is founded on anything, it's on their productivity. They are worth in Egypt exactly however many uh, bricks they can produce. And as far as I can tell, my, my, my read of this scenario is when they get to the wilderness, God is saying that is not going to work for my people. Mm, okay. My people will not be known first and foremost for their productivity, for what they can accomplish, for what they can achieve. They're going to be known for something else. And so as far as I can tell, again, like 
what's what's being asked of the Israelites in the wilderness is radical trust in God's provision. So to actually eat, to, to only have an homer in your tent and to eat it all, no savings for tomorrow, but to trust that it's going to be there again, right? Like it's it, it, it to me it turns on trust. And and so I, I just speculate that part of what's going on here is a transformation of their identity from a people who are primarily a people known as 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 captive to a people who trust radically in God and 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 uh, and that it's manna that is provided directly, you know, bread of heaven, uh, and 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 that it's just a gift of grace, which incidentally goes back to the. Um, the seventh day sabbath and and bard does a lot of a lot with this with this whole you know the humans aren't doing anything for the first six days so they don't exist at the close of day six it seems like the humans are ready to get to work god's given them a sort of like a job description be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it all this so it seems like they should get to work on day seven but that's not how the story goes on day seven it's sabbath and at that point in the story, there's no way for them to conceive of that Sabbath rest as something they have earned. It can only be a gift of God's grace. And so, so Bart says right there, day seven, grace already precedes the law. Uh, and then you fast forward to the Exodus 16, and, and, um, and the story there is, is manna at God's provision. And I think the slow reformation of their identity to a people who trust in God which leads me to death. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. what, what does Sabbath look like? Uh, I think it looks like death. I think that that Sabbath invites us through the Sabbath. God invites us to the passing away of every identity that is not rooted in God's grace. Hmm. So, so that identity that's, that is rooted in productivity, in achievement, and how many papers can I write how many pages can I read on the Sabbath that dies and and in, and in its place slowly through time is an identity rooted instead in God's grace and provision um, so I didn't again the, the, the there's a lot of different sources for me and this vision of of or that definition of Sabbath and and an important one was me hanging out with about 40 seniors in high school um, a couple of years ago and and was doing, you know, in, in academic terms, I was doing empirical research with them. Um, um, in pastoral terms, I was trying to listen really deeply to okay. how they understood and experienced rest. Okay. So through um, these time diaries that they did and focus groups and interviews, they ultimately defined rest in terms of worry, pressure, anxiety, and stress. So in other words, rest is rest if it reduces my stress, if it reduces my anxiety, if it, if it reduces my sense of, of pressure uh, for the things that I have to do. Uh, so that makes sense to me. That, uh, I, I can get behind that. Um, <laughs> as, right. as we continue to unpack this, um, they went on to confess uh, what I would call a cruel irony. And the cruel irony was that, that uh, um, as we unpacked rest more and more, they confessed uh, that rest creates its own anxiety. So, so they longed for this rest that will reduce their stress, reduce their anxiety. But then when they tried to get into it, it actually created its own anxiety. 
Um, and, and again, this isn't actually that surprising when you, when we try to stop, uh, all of a sudden we're smacked upside the head with all the stuff that we're not doing all this, the, the stuff on the to-do list that we're not accomplishing. And, and my interpretation of that anxiety for these young people is that it is a threat to the identity that they have inherited from the culture at large, from, uh, uh from a, a, an industrious society and also from a church that has lifted up, uh, you know, doing and accomplishing maybe to the expense of, uh, arresting that, um, uh, that is rooted on something other than what we can achieve or accomplish. Um, so it's, it's, and I mean, full disclosure here, this is, this is straight up autobiography as well, right? Like, uh, we, you try to rest and, uh, um, and you are confronted with, uh, let me rephrase, I try to rest <laughs> and, and I am confronted with the degree to which I have staked my identity on my own accomplishment. Uh, and that is not easy. Um, so so my, my take on Sabbath ultimately is that it is a practice in receiving life through death. Um, and, and that that the, 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 this question of like, what does it look like? Um, uh, I, I would, I would again reference the Israelites in Exodus 16 and I'd reference the, the Pharisees, uh, and their frequent confrontation with Jesus on the Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so in both cases for the Israelites in the wilderness, the invitation is on the Sabbath, don't go gather men, stay put. For the Israel, for the Pharisees, and, and you know, without going into great detail, there, my my interpretation of what Jesus is asking of the Pharisees on the Sabbath is: put down your legalism, put down your trust in the law, and instead trust in God's grace. In both cases, whether it's the Israelites or the Pharisees, the invitation is for God's people to put down something on which it appears their lives depend. So the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness have a really strong argument as far as, look, our lives depend on this manna. We don't get the manna, we don't eat, we die. The Pharisees, a similar argument with, uh, with the law, right? They see the law as sort of the, the, the boundary, the protection of this covenant relationship. And I think in both cases, uh, the invitation, God's invitation is put it down. Put down the thing uh, that you're tempted to believe your life depends on it. And, 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 and then, uh, your hands are open <laughs> to receive this, this grace, this rest. Uh, and yes, it's going to mess with you. And, and I'm more and more convinced that that disorientation and that anxiety is part of the point of the Sabbath. It's supposed to mess with us all the way down to the level of, of identity of who am I, uh, where do I really stake my claim as far as who I am or who we are as God's people. And, uh, uh, and it is, it's ex extremely difficult, but as you journey through that, there is this possibility of a recognition and a reception, uh, or uh, a recognition and a receptivity to an identity that is, is infinitely more satisfying and profound than the, 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 
frailty of any identity that's just merely rooted on what I can do or achieve. Wow. 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 Man, that. All right. So there, <laughs> there's so much there. That is that is good. So. All right. So, I mean, I I mean, as I was trained as particularly as a young youth worker myself and having come through really the annals of of, of youth ministry, it was it, it was productivity. It was you had the intersection of being black and having to deal with, you know, all the racial components of that. And then, uh, it, you know, what, what you have to do to raise money, all those things. I mean, how man. Well, let me well, let me start here. Let me ask, what is what then does that that process look like when you add in those intersections? And, you know, and you and there and there are I feel like oftentimes people fail upwards. So it's like you get the most um, anxiety ridden, stressed out, you know, uh, unprocessed in terms of uh, their own uh, mental health person at the top of an organization. And they are the ones you know, that, you know, they don't take no for an answer. They don't think, you know, they're drivers and, you know, they're up at yeah. five in the morning and, you know, they're in bed at 11 and they start the whole day again. And somehow they think that's, that is accomplishing. And then, you know, of course you throw ministry on top of that. Well, this is, God has got me, God has got me. How then does one navigate some of those, those arenas, given what you've broken down so eloquently uh, here and looking at that death, that process? Because then the next question I want to figure out, like, what does that, what is that death? When you talk about that, I mean, because I, I like that, right? It gets at you and your own identity. I mean, that's that is that is huge. But let me start there. Does that does that question make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Um, because it gets at, I mean, so so I I can't uh, obviously speak. Uh, you know, I'm coming at this as a white male, right? Um, so so I can't speak into this necessarily from another, you know, uh, location, but it, but what I hear in, in your question and your comment is, is the extent to which, um, so much of the culture around ministry is, is go, 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 go. Um, and, and it is like the, the the people who who quote make it in ministry tend to be exactly like you said the ones who are crazy driven right and and they're getting up and uh, and and they're they're the ones who would identify God as a source for their drivenness yeah oh absolutely so um, I don't so I, I have a story and I don't know if it yes. gets at it break you it can, down come on yeah. so I was a like I said I was a youth pastor for six years. Um, and, and I had a youth, uh, young, young woman named, we'll, we'll call her Sarah. And, um, uh, she was the youngest child, uh, of this woman in the church who was just this faithful, lovely woman. Um, but Sarah was, you know, she was this, this woman's sort of last hope for one of her kids staying in the church. Uh, all her other kids had kind of grown up and just like they'd had it with the church had gone their gone their different ways. Sarah's mom gets cancer. Mm. And uh, as she is passing away from cancer in the process of, of, of that um, terrible situation, she basically looks to the church and, and entrusts Sarah to us. She says, please make sure Sarah stays in the church. And so we as a church 
promise we'll do everything we can. Hmm. And, and, uh, and so Sarah's mom passes away and, uh, and it's heartbreaking. And, and Sarah sticks with the youth group for a while, but it's not very long before, like, you can just watch her tuning out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you just kind of, it's like this long, slow train wreck where you can just see her making these decisions and she's grieving and she's, you know, and, and, and all of her older, she's just following the path of all of her older siblings. And, and there is this sense of crazy hopelessness as a pastor. And so there is within that, this question for me, this Sabbath question of like, wait a minute, Am I really saying to the youth, to, to myself as youth pastor, that even though this woman has entrusted her child to you to keep her in the church, and she's out there, Sarah's out there uh, doing who knows what with who knows who, that you're telling me to stop and rest? Mm. And, and my only response to that is yes. Mm. And, and the reason being is that at some point I have to acknowledge that I can't save Sarah. Mm, wow. And, and in some sense, it is an entrusting of the ministry to Christ to say mm. this at the end of the day has to be Christ's ministry. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a long history, especially within youth ministry of us youth pastors getting the old Messiah complex and thinking, well, you know, <laughs> right. If we don't save the world, who's gonna? Right. Uh, but when, when, and where in our lives do we remember at that sort of core visceral identity level, we ain't savior, and we're not supposed to be. And is it possible that in this regular ceasing, and then the you know the, the 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 Hebrew term there for Sabbath literally means to cease or to stop. When is it possible that that regular ceasing is also this reminder? that there's work that was never ours to do. Wow. Um, uh, you know, again, that's easy, easier for me to say that 10 years removed from, you know, Sarah's story. Uh, and, and, and it's a much more difficult choice when, you know, Sarah's shooting you text messages now and and you said it was going to be Sabbath time, or you know, or whatever the case. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I do, I, I do think that it comes back to to identity stuff, and it comes back to what what work is ours and what work is not ours, and how do we practice our radical trust in God? What does that look like? And there are a lot of different ways that we can do that. But my deep hunch is that Sabbath is one way that we practice that radical trust. We profess our faith in God's ability to provide daily bread for us. Um, and, and we are willing to endure the deaths that might ensue because of that. Now, now I, I, I say all that recognizing, you know, I, I think that the Pharisees make this terrible error and end up trusting in their Sabbath legislation more than they trust in the giver of the Sabbath. Right. So, I, and, and, and the, the, all the question about, you know, well, if you're, if your ox is in the well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go pull your ox out. Right. So there's, there's, I don't have any clean, you know, three easy steps to perfect Sabbath practice, <laughs> but I, right. I, I, I do think that, that we can, 
we can look at the patterns of our lives. And I think it's really important to have people journeying with us who might be able to look at us and say, you know what, it looks like if you're looking for that thing that you're trusting as if your life depends on it, it might be this, might be that, might be email, might be, uh, you know, writing, might be, um, I don't know what, right? But but um, to have a community that that puts the stuff down together and 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 professes in faith a deeper identity, um, I think it can be really transformative um, um, for, for communities of faith. Um, but, but it's one of the hardest things we'll ever do as far as I can tell. Oh man. I mean, cause what really what you're talking about, and this is, you know, part of the, one of the themes that I wanted to have here for my new season is to, to really look at, you know, mental health. Like what are the things that drive us? What are the things that we are on, you know, looking and I find it, and I'll speak for myself, um, that a lot of it is surrounding that because it's like, well, I don't want to rest. Maybe sometimes the rest means now I have to reflect on things. Like you said, going down to that identity, what is my identity in? Am I, am I really trusting God or am I really still trying to control something? Um, and I know that was the case, especially early on in my, in my ministry, but also even as I disidentified, you know, when I, when I moved away and then, and then my title wasn't youth pastor anymore. It was like, that was like an identity crisis, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but that came about because I was, you know, I was, I, I had to rest. I had to go through that, right. Rather than, you know, continuing the noise and stuff, man. So really what you're talking about and correct me if I'm wrong is, is a deeper, you know, self introspection, you know, this almost the intrapersonal communication within ourselves. Like, what do we tell ourselves that, that, you know, that keeps us going? I mean, yeah. is, this, is this sort of, I mean, oh, go ahead. I know. I think that's exactly right. But I think it, it applies equally to, uh, to faith communities, to Christian faith communities, because it can be this, this, um, I, I do think it is intensely personal. I think it is personally transformational. Um, but but there's a there's a woman uh, by the name of Judith Judith Shulevitz. She wrote this hmm. book, Sabbath, maybe ten years ago already. Um, and and she is a secular Jew basically, but remembers like her her mom tried to sort of uh, practice Jewish faith. Her dad was like didn't want anything to do with it. But she has these sort of vague childhood memories of her mom trying to help the kids practice Sabbath. But then she grew up and was you know miles away from all this stuff. Somewhere in her adulthood, she became completely fascinated, obsessed with the Sabbath. She researched everything she could about it um, and, and tried to practice it some and, and wrote this beautiful book about the Sabbath. And at the end of the book, uh, she makes this, this um, I think, gut-wrenching and sobering confession. And she basically says, I think Sabbath is absolutely beautiful and I could never do it. Hmm. I could never do it unless I was situated in a community for which it was important. She's like, there's the, the, the societal forces are too strong. Uh, I would, but if I was in a community that lifted this up, it would be one of the most beautiful things I can imagine. Right. Wow. So, so that's, so, so then it, then the Sabbath messes with like, where, where the center of gravity maybe for our identity is it is it this thing that i hold or is it this thing that is held somewhere in the space between me and my community and and i don't like this is taking sabbath formation to to a place that um <laughs> it that that's far 
far, far surpasses human agency, right? Like, I, I think it, it would take a breath, a wind, uh, a, a ferocious wind, perhaps, of the Holy Spirit to come across a, a community, given, you know, most, I'll say at least most East Coast or urban, you know, ministry context that I know of, where the emphasis is so much on productivity and activity and go, go, go. Like, what would it look like for a community to say, no, we're going to stop? And in some sense, like, we already do this. I, like, worship in some ways is a microcosm, right? Theoretically, the community mm. is putting down activity. It is, it is turning its attention to God and lifting up, you know, that identity. I think there's a, there, that, that there's a reason, right, that worship and Sabbath have, have historically gone together. But I think it's also true, especially for those of us in ministry, that worship thing is another thing to do, right? Like we got to get it done. We got to yeah. put it together and, yeah. and walk away from that. And you need a nap, right? So <laughs> there's, there's a, a lot of layers there. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, so let me ask this then. Let me, let me, let me move on to Cause this, like I said, this is rich. I mean, this is, you know, Warner, Warner wasn't lying. Warner, if you're listening, man, this is, this is awesome. So, well, <laughs> let me, let me ask this then. I mean, so, what about, because you talked a little bit about that, right? So if you're the worship leader, so what about some of the legalism surrounding? I mean, this again was kind of my upbringing, right? It's like, yeah. once I started looking at the Sabbath for what it was, and this again, what you're talking about, I wish I had, you know, it had this, you know, 25 years ago and whatnot. But as you start looking at the Sabbath and what it means, what you know, what about some of the legalism? Because I know I was prescribed a certain thing, like, you know, no TV, no radio, nothing that, you know, that takes your mind away from God or nothing, this and this and this. But then my question would come back and be like, okay, well, we as Adventists, we have hospitals, right? And they're open 24 hours. So what about the doctors that are there? Do they, you know, we, you know, we just tell everybody, okay, don't get sick for the next, you know, 14 yeah. hours or whatever. Like, I mean, so I don't know. I mean, how have, have you had a chance to kind of, you know, get into some of that as, as well? And I mean, and I know that I'll put it to you this, like that, like this. So it's not just Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, I, there's a church literally right up the street from mine. Uh, they're, they're African-American Israelites and you know, they're right outside the, you know, thing that say, you know, the fourth commandment is God's commandment, you know, which I, I know exactly what they're, what they're talking about. So, yeah. well, I mean, what does that, what does that look like, you know, in, in this conversation? I figured I just wanted to bring that up because yeah. you seem pretty knowledgeable in this area. Yeah. So let's say, let me ask Nate. <laughs> um, I will, I'll say this. Uh, I, I, I mean, and, and again, this is going to come across as, as, abstract theologizing but i mean it in a really concrete way no come come with it, man come come on with it shoot and, and that is uh you know i think similar to the pharisees there there i think it's a trust question again and and if we're trusting our our prescriptions for what sabbath looks or doesn't look like then we have misplaced our trust mm. and, and so how how do we hold even our Sabbath guidelines or, or rules, if, if we must, how do we hold those rules, even those rules in open hands and say, you know, at the end of the day, God, if it's not you that we are encountering through these guidelines, through these rules, then we need to rethink our rules or we need to rethink our identity or we need to rethink, you know, our, this, this whole thing. And, and um, so I, I, the, the, um, uh, I, since you brought it up more or less, I, the, a lot of this is, will be in a book that's coming out next, um, June, I think. All right. Um, 
but in that in the first chapter, I tell the story of a of a seminary student that I met here uh, a couple of years ago, and and she grew up in a home. Her grandmother, interestingly, was Mennonite. My faith background is is also Mennonite. Okay, and um, she had this Mennonite grandmother who was deeply legalistic, especially about the Sabbath. Like she, she said, my grandma never used the word Sunday. It wasn't Sunday. It was Sabbath. And, uh, <laughs> right. You know, and there was all this from like, you, you, you know, uh, what you do and what you don't do all the way to, down to like, she couldn't latch hook, which is like this craft, you know, project thing. She couldn't do that on Sunday. And, and, um, and she, through, through seminary and through, you know, some of our shared explorations, had to come through that and recognize um, that that just how stifling it was. Um, so you know, again, it we haven't talked a ton about Jesus and Sabbath, but if you uh, if you go through and look at all of the instances in the Gospels where you find Jesus and Sabbath, I think pretty consistently the trajectory of those encounters is toward life and freedom. Uh, so the disciples plug grain on the Sabbath to feed themselves. Uh, Jesus is healing over and over and over again on the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. And a lot of this is, as far as I can tell, the trajectory is life and wholeness and freedom. So if our Sabbath uh, uh, legalism is crushing our life, then something is wrong. Hmm. Uh, you know, so... So how how ultimately I mean and I and I get right that I'm the sense in which I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth it's death but if it looks like death then you have a problem I, I, it, it's it's you know I, I think there is um, uh, there is ongoing discernment work to do regarding how we establish guidelines for ourselves and. Um, uh, and and I don't have, uh, like I said, three easy steps on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it requires the discernment of, of a faith community. I think it requires prayer and and uh, um, and and a lot of listening and and a willingness to die to the things that ultimately um, uh, don't resonate with uh, or echo the core of the gospel, uh, which to me is healing and life and vitality. Um, and so, yeah, Man. when I come up with the three easy steps for a Sabbath practice, I'll let you know, but I, I don't see it coming. <laughs> no brother. And boy, and I, and, and I'm glad you say that. Cause I'm, I'm definitely not a, a person with that. I mean, I, in fact, I, I say that a lot on the show and in stuff that I've written as well. It's like, you know, no, that's, you know, I think those three easy steps are, are, are part of the problem. I think folks are, you know, trying to look for that. Um, and, yeah. you, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. Um, you know, as the, we think, the, 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 the short answer on legalism yes. is don't trust it. Mm. Don't, don't trust legalism. Because uh, even that is a reduction of a living God, right? If, if God is actually out there, if God is truly calling us to this rest, it could never be reduced to a legal code. A legal code might help. Guidelines might move us. But don't trust the legalism. Wow, wow, yeah, brother, man, that's uh, man, that's 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 deep, that's deep, that's deep. Because, like I said, I mean, you know, 
I've had to do a lot of work, man, both therapeutic and just, about, you know, personal and just with mentors and friends, you know, to, just to get to a spot because I've realized just the power of resting. I mean, and one of the things I've tried to implement um, now is, 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 you know, I have the privilege of teaching and a faculty member myself and like, you know, really taking the summer and utilizing that time and stuff and, you know, really breaking it down. So for me, over the last few years, I've been able to take July, just the month of July, where, you know, I just I turn everything off. I uh, really try to focus on just some of the things that, you know, I want to do and stuff. And that's and that's been very freeing and, and yeah. liberating and a time to really, like you said, reflect. Not all of it is always good because it's like, oh, man, it's like it's easy to be like, oh, yes, I'm very proud and everything. But it's like, man, like there's some deeper things that like, you know, what are the things that you actually think? How do things you, you know, actually operate? And what are some of the same patterns that come up for me? Again, I'll just speak for myself for me. That only can come f- when when I'm when, when I'm in a, in a, in, a, in a Sabbath rest and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's been difficult, especially coming out of a very fundamentalist background. You know, to not as they say, throw the baby out with the bathwater and just you know yeah. completely do away uh, with the Sabbath. Um, I'm curious, just uh, you know, moving forward, and well, I mean, this may be even you know backtracking a little bit, but it, it, how me how it. Just you getting into a dissertation and all that stuff, man. I mean, how did you? I mean, how did you arrive at this? What was you know what was what was the interest? I mean, you sort of hinted around with that, but I was but I just wanted to ask that you know just a little bit more directly yeah. and just be like, how you know how did you come come to this work? Yeah, yeah. I I think it it was a a number of things. Um, one one of the factors was somewhere. Um, in, I think it might've been in college. Uh, I just had this sense and I don't, again, I'm not sure where it came from, but, but this sense that, uh, uh, I mean, people, I I've seen recently people talking about, um, quote, total work as like this. Um, I think this sort of mythical thing where like you work is all you live for and, and whatever all, and, and, and it's kind of, you know, the sum of your identity is work. Uh, and I think I had this sense, even in college, that there was something really wrong with that, that, mm. that, you know, you would just work endlessly and that that, that was a good thing. Um, then in youth ministry, when I started as a youth pastor, uh, the before when I interviewed for to be this this church's youth pastor, um, uh, a pastor uh, at the denominational level who who became one of my closest mentors and friends and is a, is a dear mentor and friend to this day. He, he kind of really pushed me. Okay. Uh, and he was just like, um, he basically said, look, this job will suck everything out of you if you let it. Um, and uh, are you going to let it? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And, so he, was, he, and he, he, he kind of, interviewed me and Janelle, my, uh, at that point, she was my fiance and, and pushed both of us to say, if you don't clearly define your role here and, and what is yours and what's not yours, the role will overtake you. And, 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 and in some sense, like I, I can, now I can read on to that, all of the identity stuff, right? Like the job will become your identity if you let it. And so are you willing to sort of set some boundaries and, and, um, and, you know, and he really pushed Janelle also, like, is the church getting a two for one here because you're going to be the youth pastor's wife uh, or not? 
And are, mm. are you willing to kind of set these boundaries around it? So that, that all of that's kind of played into this. Um, so then fast forward into seminary days and, um, and coming to Princeton, New, Princeton, New Jersey um, from Kansas. I mean, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore, right? <laughs> right. Um, and I think that there's, there's pressure and, you know, temptation to reduce our identity to what we can achieve everywhere. But, but, you know, the Northeast is its own unique pressure cooker. Um, and, um, uh, and I don't know that we have a corner on that market. I just know it's here. I know that in the air in in Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton University, just down the street, there is this ethos of you are what you can achieve full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even like, there's a, there's a coffee shop downtown, um, um, that's like a, an, um, like a pillar of of the community and they sell these coffee mugs. Uh, and the, 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 the motto on the coffee cup is sleep is for the week. And, uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's tongue in cheek, it's funny and it's terrible, right? Like right. it's, it's, it's totally this, this kind of artifact of the culture where, um, um, of course we will deny ourselves rest, deny ourselves sleep because of the incredible work that we have to do. Um, and, and that, uh, ultimately for me became oppressive. Um, and, and it became, um, so deeply disconcerting that I had to, I, 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 I was just so hungry for a theological response to this to say like, well, is, is this what God wants? Right. Like is, it, is it God's desire that we just, you know, work till we're dead or is there something more? And, and, and so that ultimately led into these Sabbath explorations um, and, and into this, um, what I see as this amazingly beautiful affirmation, even though I'm not always good at receiving it, this amazingly beautiful affirmation that before we can do anything, we are God's beloved children. Mm. and and that that's that's where it's at so so i i didn't finish the story but the seminary student who i got to know a couple years ago who had this legal legalistic grandma she went through this process uh of, of trying to figure out how she might redeem the sabbath and and um are you familiar with the imposter syndrome yes absolutely yeah, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I'm infected with it. Just so you know, um, <laughs> hey brother, I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> but but this this seminary student um, confessed that like when she got to seminary, uh, that she just struggled severely with imposter syndrome. And she would look, she'd go into the cafeteria, she'd look around the room, and she'd be like, "Every person in this room knows more than I do. They've read more than I do." Um, they know Greek better than I do, you know, more than me, more than me. I'm not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. And this was like paralyzing to her. Wow. And, and so as she was discerning how she might redeem the Sabbath and she was asking this question, what is it uh, on which it appears my life depends that I need to put down so that I can receive the gift of Sabbath? She decides, and I didn't see this coming, but she decides that her Sabbath practice is going to involve putting down imposter syndrome. <laughs> Wow. So, so she does this uh, for a year and, and it changed her life. So when I, I was interviewing her about this and I asked her, I said, well, what, what, um, what do you feel like God was doing 
in and through this Sabbath practice. And she thought about it for a while. And she said, through this Sabbath practice, I heard God tell me I'm your beloved child or you are my beloved child. And, and, and to me, like, like there is, there's, it's all there. Like the identity stuff, the putting down the stuff that tempts us to, to trust it, like all that. Imagine that we can set all that down and we can actually hear God affirm to us that we are God's beloved children. Um, that that's, that's it. You know, wow. Um, I need, I need that, right? I yeah. need that in my life. I think the church needs that. Youth pastors need that. People in the academy need that. Yes. The world needs to hear that before, yes. you know, before you could lift a finger and do anything. You're God's beloved child. Not because you earned it. Not because you got enough work done. Mm. Not because you did it. But because at the dawn of creation, before human humankind could lift a finger and toil, God said, stop. Rest. Be mine first. And then go out into the world to work and to serve. Wow. Amen, man. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Wow, man, this time just flew by, brother. This time was this great. I'm going to definitely have to get you back and expound on some more of these ideas. But this is this has been amazing, man. Um, where might folks find you? Where might they, you know, when that book comes out, where might they, you know, come get, you know, a few hundred copies and all that good stuff? <laughs> so uh, the title of the book is Wrestling with Rest. Um, it's being published by Erdman's. Uh, like I said, the last I saw is supposed to be out next June. Um, I, I don't do social media. <laughs> hey, it's so, all good. No, absolutely. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, put down to try to remember who I am. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, I'm at Princeton Theological Seminary, um, and and uh, I can be found through the the, the seminary websites. Um, and and one easy way to find me is actually through the farminary. Um, um, the, the farminary email address is farminary at ptsem.edu. Mm-hmm. And folks are, are absolutely, uh, welcome to, to reach out. And, um, I assume the book will be, you know, on the Amazons and whatever all, uh, it, it's obviously my first book. So, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know, it's, it'll, it'll be pages. There'll, there'll be a page to get it. Uh, <laughs> that is right. Anyway, no, man. Well, and when it comes out, man, I'd love to have you back on. And like I said, we know I'd love to talk about it and get into that, man. I, I think that would yeah. I think that would be great. Um, So, yeah. yeah. Well, brother, thank you so much for taking the time coming on the show today. I really appreciate you, um, you know, just expounding on some of these ideas. This is powerful. You've given all of us, including myself, you know, plenty to plenty to think about. And especially, you know, as it relates to rest. Yeah, well, it's absolutely my privilege. I am am so honored uh, for the conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it and, uh, and trust there will be more in the future. Amen to that. <laughs>